question for that. I know that imaginative prayers are not, um, they don't hit everyone the same. For some of you, I think they're very powerful moments and experiences. For others, they just kind of miss. Uh, I am one of them for whom they are deeply meaningful, and so I always appreciate it when Pastor Ben leads us through one of them. I want to go ahead and invite you to open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 34. We will not be putting the passage on the screen today. I will be reading from the NIV. You're welcome, of course, just to listen um, or to follow along in the Bible in the pew. I struggled a lot with this message. You know, the fact that I've we sent an email and I talked about it already this morning probably alerted you to that. Um, but to the point where I had a hard time figuring out why I wasn't sleeping last night. And then Lisa just kind of said, is it the sermon? And at first I said no, and, and then I think I realized absolutely yes. And the reason for that is because the story today is about something that really happens to people. It is not just a Bible character that experiences it. People that I know and love and care about deeply have experienced it as well. And I think that it's good for us to always be careful um, when we are taking on something, whether it's in a conversation or whether it's from the pulpit, something that, that may cost other people more than it costs us for us to talk about. And when a person has just lost a loved one, um, sitting around and talking about the pain of losing a loved one means it probably costs them more than it costs you when you're having that conversation. I just want to mention that I'm aware of that, and, and I've wrestled with passages like this in the past, and usually in the past, at some point in the night on Saturday night, I decide I feel like the Spirit tells me to do something else, and that just did not happen. And so we are going to dive in here in a moment to Genesis 34. And I think that it's good for us to not always shirk away from these stories. And one of the reasons for that is that the Bible is a mirror And when we hold it up and we look at it intently, we can see an uncomfortable truth. We see that every part of the human heart has been infected by sin. That's true of the characters in the story, and it's true of us as well. And because of that, to our shame, we human beings are capable of tremendous evil. Now, in this story, we're still with Jacob, and we've been with Jacob for a while now. We know that Jacob began his life as a trickster, right? The one who held on to his brother's heel as he came out of the womb to, to avoid doing the work. Then he, from stealing birthrights to um, stealing blessings, Jacob just lived his life in this way of, of trying to avoid having to do things on his own or allowing God to do them for him. Jacob is someone who likes to swindle and trick. And then, not last week, but in the weeks beforehand, we talked about Jacob sort of learning his lesson, him wrestling with God. We talked about him matching wits with his uncle Laban. And at the end of these stories, we really do seem to see a transformed Jacob, a Jacob who has learned and grown. But what we're going to hear and see in this story is that that process is not yet done. You see, we tend to think of, of spiritual growth as a straight line, right? I start here, and then as I grow and I mature, I just kind of grow and grow and grow. But actually, I think it's a, 
it's a much more windy process. People will be at a high point doing really well, and shortly thereafter they may be at a low point, and God feels far away, and they're struggling to even find time to read their Bibles or pray, and then they find themselves on, a, on an up again. That tends to be how growth happens, and I don't think it's different for us on this side of the cross in that way um, from them. I think that Jacob struggled with this as well. Now, what's happened is Jacob has been called to go to Bethel, but he doesn't. He doesn't go there. In Genesis chapter 33, he stops at about a day short of it, and he buys some land, and he settles in this place called Shechem. And that can be confusing because the prince of this land is also named Shechem, but the, the city seems to be called Shechem as well. Now, it's easy to understand why Jacob did this. It's easy to understand why he stopped about a day's journey short of his destination. Jacob is a rich man, and he's a clever one. And Shechem was a place for rich men to get richer. It was a center for trade. It was a crossroads where people came through, and if you had resources, you could use them to become very wealthy. And even though God had called him to Bethel, Shechem is within the borders of the land that was going to be Jacob's families. It's within the borders of the promised land. So you can imagine in his mind, he says, sure, I didn't go exactly where I was supposed to go, but I'm, I'm kind of where I'm supposed to go. None of us can relate to anything like that, I'm sure. And then, to make his disobedience here sting a little more, he sets up an altar as soon as he gets there, and he starts going by the name that God has given him, Israel. So in other words, he does this thing that is not what God has asked him to do, and as soon as he does it, he sets up an altar, you know, to really baptize it. Just as a side note, just as a side note, don't ever think that disobedience comes without a cost. It always comes with a cost, and the entirety of our story today is, is a look at the cost of Jacob's disobedience. But if, even when you do disobey, don't baptize it and pretend that it was for the Lord that you made this choice. We should own it when we walk away or turn away or don't obey. But he sets up an altar and he begins going by the name that God has given him. Now, this story is about evil. And there are really two questions that Christians wrestle with with evil. They're the same two questions people have wrestled with for a very long time. The questions are this. Why do bad things happen? In other words, why does evil exist? If God is good, how could God be good and evil things exist? People who don't wrestle with this usually have not really experienced or encountered evil, but for those that have, it's hard. How could there be a good God that is, in, is powerful and almighty and in control and then at the same time, evil, not God evil, evil exists. That's the first question. How could there be evil if God is good? And the second question about evil is what are we supposed to do about it? How are we supposed to respond to evil? So we come to Genesis 34. You can read along with me or you can just listen. I didn't get a PowerPoint this week because, again, the sensitive nature of everything, I just didn't want to, uh, didn't want to put it up on the screen. We're going to take this bit by bit and talk about it as we go. Verses 1 to 4. 
Now Dinah, the daughter Leah had borne to Jacob, went out to visit the women of the land. When Shechem, son of Hamor the Hivite, the ruler of that area, saw her, he took her and violated her. His heart was drawn to Dinah, daughter of Jacob, and he loved the girl and spoke tenderly to her. And Shechem said to his father Hamor, get me this girl as my wife. Some things I want you to notice right away in this story. Dinah is described in several different ways. In fact, I feel like there's a statement being made every time Dinah is described because sometimes she's the daughter of Leah, sometimes she's the daughter of Jacob, sometimes she's the sister to her brothers, but it it seems like something is happening every time she's named or described. Distressingly so, Jacob does not seem to claim her or describe her as his daughter as a reflex. Another thing I want you to notice about Dina in this story, or Dinah in this story, is she's not doing anything after this. This is it. Verse 1, she goes out to visit the women of the land. From there she neither speaks nor acts. Dinah is not the character who is doing things in this story. This story is about the people who react to what has happened to her. So, she goes out, she she wants to visit, she wants to make friends in the place that her father has settled, and she was spotted by the prince, Shechem. It says first that he took and violated her, which is the, the literal Hebrew word, but we know what it means. Then, apparently, it says that he fell in love with her, and so wants her as his wife. Now, let's talk for just a moment about how absolutely awful this is. We know from the story thus far that the act of sex is intended as an act of marriage. In Genesis chapter 1, in the story of Isaac and Rebekah, even Jacob and his wives, over and over again, we see that this is something that is supposed to happen as marriage happens. It's a part of the process of getting married in the Old Testament, and of course, it's part of married life afterwards. What is not supposed to happen is for sex to happen before people have come together in marriage. And we see in this case, this particular case, how destructive this form of it is. This is a violation. It's not consensual. She's been assaulted. This is a man who sees a stranger who has the power to harm her and takes something from her that was only ever meant to be given willingly as an act of love. And then afterwards, he decides he likes her, even loves her. And this isn't clear until later, but we find out that he doesn't allow her to leave. All the rest of the story happens, and Dinah is kept at his home. She's not permitted to return to her family. So whatever he is feeling, I don't think that we're supposed to understand it as true love. This is a horrible person and has decided that he likes the person whom he's just assaulted and has the power to keep her. So he does. Verse 5, when Jacob heard that his daughter Dinah had been defiled, his sons were in the fields with his livestock, so he kept quiet about it until they came home. 
Now, we're not told exactly why Jacob is silent. It never says he kept quiet for this reason. But when you take in the whole story, it really seems as though Jacob just wants to pretend that nothing has happened. And it's just so easy to see why he would want to pretend. He's a wealthy man. He has plans camping in this area to become a wealthier man. And this kind of conflict with the prince of the city is going to cause problems for him. His time here, his relationship with this family, could turn out really good for him or really badly for him. And it seems like his first thought when he hears about what's happened to his daughter is how this could bode badly for him. The injustice that's done to his daughter seems to be an inconvenience. His life would be much simpler if it had not happened, and so he is quiet. When an evil happens, it is the responsibility of those who are near it to not ignore it. In your life, when you encounter an act of evil done against you or another person, it is not righteous to pretend that evil has not been done, even when it's in Convenient, perhaps especially when it's inconvenient. We are called to be people of peace. But peace does not mean pretending evil doesn't exist. It means something much bigger than that. We are not called to be silent. There's so many real-life cases of this right now, but I was thinking about what's happening in China. Uyghur Muslims are being killed in massive numbers in China. It's called the Uyghur Genocide. It is the worst example of its kind since the Holocaust. It's happening right now as we speak in China, has been since about 2014. Peace with China, our businesses desire to to work with China, to partner with China, all of those things come at a cost a willingness to accept what's happening in China. Now, I'm not saying that businesses should behave in one way or another. I'm not a business owner. I have the luxury of not having to make those decisions. But you see what I mean in that any kind of peace with them comes at the cost of ignoring an act of evil. And when we ignore the act of evil, we lose our place to say this is thoroughly unacceptable. When evil happens, it is the responsibility of those who are near it to not ignore it. Verses 6 and 7. Then Shechem's father Hamor went out to talk with Jacob. Now Jacob's sons had come in from the fields as soon as they heard what had happened. They were filled with grief and fury because Shechem had done a disgraceful thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, a thing that should not be done. Okay, we have angry brothers. They're furious. I think this is what we would expect. In fact, we were surprised to not see this reaction from her father. Verses 8 to 12. But Hamor said to them, My son Shechem has his heart set on your daughter. Please give her to him as his wife. 
Intermarry with us. Give us your daughters and take our daughters for yourselves. You can settle among us. The land is open to you. Live in it, trade in it, and acquire property in it. Then Shechem said to Dinah's father and brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes, and I will give you whatever you ask. Make the price for the bride and the gift I am to bring as great as you like, and I'll pay whatever you ask me. Only give me the girl as my wife. Please understand this for how evil it is. Shechem has already taken and violated Dinah. Now he comes without repentance and offers to pay for her. Now sometimes we have to contend with the fact that things were different in the ancient Near East and that the treatment of women is not what we would hope for it to be. But this does not appear to be one of those times. We see that because of how the brothers react. They react the way we would imagine ourselves reacting in this situation with grief and anger and fury. This was unacceptable behavior. This was horrible, a true act of evil. This is a powerful and abusive man who has violated this woman and now leaves her at his home while he goes to negotiate to marry with her. Now, we don't know why he didn't bring her, but we can guess pretty well that it's because that she would have asked not to be wed to him. You see, this is a time when arranged marriages were the way of the world. And we have this idea a lot of the times that an arranged marriage means a child has no say. And that was almost never the case. You remember the story of Isaac and Rebecca. Rebecca is asked and gives approval. Most of the time, and it was considered very bad for parents not to consult their children about arranged marriages. And I imagine there's a very simple reason why. I imagine that a marriage you have consented to is likely to go much better than a marriage you have not consented to. Shechem doesn't want Dinah to be part of the conversation, and I think that's because he's mistreated her and she doesn't want to be with him anymore. So here he is in front of her brothers and father asking for her hand in marriage. Verses 13 to 17. Because their sister Dinah had been defiled, Jacob's sons replied deceitfully as they spoke to Shechem and his father Hamor. They said to them, we can't do such a thing. We can't give our sister to a man who is not circumcised. That would be a disgrace to us. We will give our consent to you on one condition only, that you become like us by circumcising all your males. Then we will give you our daughters and take your daughters for ourselves. We'll settle among you and become one people with you, but if you will not agree to be circumcised, we'll take our sister and go. I'm not going to read the rest of the story just because it's very long, but here's what happens. You may be familiar with this already. Simeon and Levi, who are the full-blooded brothers of Dinah, who seem to be the most bothered on her behalf, again, which troubles us because her father is not as angry as they are, but they ask for these men to be circumcised, and then, a few days later, the Bible actually says, while they're in the pain of recovery, Simeon and Levi, two men, come in and slaughter all the males. They kill all the males. It doesn't say men, it says males. And so, while Jacob was quiet, 
not wanting to upset his possible future fortune. Dinah's brothers were not. Simeon and Levi, the sons of Leah, full brothers to Dinah, take revenge against every male in the city. They use the symbol for covenant membership given to them by God to symbolize those set apart for him. And they used it to let them kill dozens of men. This would be like saying, you must be baptized. And when the person is in the water, holding them down until they drown. This is taking something sacred, given by God, and using it for a terrible purpose. The other brothers loot the bodies. And the boys, the sons, all take everything that's left. I want to finish the text, and then I want to talk about their, this particular response, the son's response to the injustice. Verses 30 and 31. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You've brought trouble on me by making me a stench to the Canaanites and Perizzites, the people living in this land. We are few in number, and if they join forces against me and attack me, I and my household will be destroyed. But they replied, Should he have treated our sister like a prostitute? This is a hard story. I think that this story is in the Bible because it teaches us about what I'm, what I'm calling stop short righteousness. And here's what I mean by that. Stop short righteousness. Shechem does an evil action, but then offers to marry Dinah afterwards. Dinah afterwards. If you squint real hard, you can see a kernel of something that you might want to call righteousness there, but it isn't. It's far too little. It's definitely too late. It's a pretend good thing in service of selfish desire. Jacob does stop short righteousness as well. He's silent. His only words in the story are rebuking his sons for ruining his chances of being on good terms with the people in this center of trade. In other words, they've made it impossible for Jacob to get wealthier there. Now, if you squint real hard, it can look like Jacob is trying to be a man of peace. He doesn't want to retaliate. He wants to forget about it. But peace can never come at the cost of ignoring evil and pretending it does not exist. Because that means someone else is paying for your inaction. And the brothers rage. They basically use God's commandments to make an entire city vulnerable and then in their anger, they commit so much murder. If you squint real hard, it can look like there's a kernel of justice here, but there isn't. You see, it isn't enough to decide you're going to stand up to evil. When an act of evil happens, it's our responsibility to not also respond with evil. So we could ask the question, in this story, what were they supposed to do? This awful thing happens. What was the right way to respond? It's an interesting question, and I actually thought about just throwing it out and asking you for ideas. What should they have done? But I don't think that, that there's supposed to be a right answer. The easiest thing would, to say would be that Jacob should never have settled in a place other than the one God called him to. Right? If Jacob just would have obeyed, this would have never happened. But we end up all the time in situations where we've done something wrong or someone else has, and now it's hard to see a way forward that's righteous. 
I think the point of this story is that there's nothing they could do. Human beings are not capable of navigating the mess of evil without stumbling in the midst of it. Either we, like Shechem, are the ones who have caused the problems, or like Jacob, we want to pretend that they're not happening, or like the brothers, we're too sure of our own righteousness and we end up paying back evil for evil. I think the point of this story is that it's impossible for us on our own to deal with evil. We cannot do it. Remember what I said before, the Bible is like a mirror. When we hold it up and we look at ourselves, we see that we are not equipped to answer the questions about evil. You remember the questions, why does evil exist and what are we supposed to do about it? We are not equipped to answer them. We are not enough. There's no human way to make the events in Genesis 34 right again. But when we hold up that mirror and we look closely at it, we see in this story that we don't have to. If we look closely at this story, we start to see someone who is one of us, but is different in a vitally important way. You see, the hope of the Christian faith is that the kingdom we've been promised is a kingdom founded on the love of God as he dealt with evil. Now, Diana does nothing wrong in this story. And she's silent. She's surrounded by people misusing their political power, by those misusing religion, and the one who should speak up for her doesn't say a word in order to protect himself. It's hard not to look at this story and see her connection to Jesus. So what is God doing about evil? If we jump way ahead to the book of Romans, in chapter 7, there's this kind of famous passage where Paul wrestles with his own inability to do right. And one of the things that he says over and over again is that the law brings sin to the fore. I would not have known what was wrong if not for the law. In fact, the law seems to bring sin out in the open. And then we move over to Romans chapter 8. The law brings sin out into the open, and then Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. I'll give you a minute to turn there. It's worth taking a moment to turn there. Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. Again, the law has been given, and it causes sin to become very easy to see. In fact, you do not know the rebellion inside of you until someone says, do not do this. We've talked about this before. If you put a wet paint, do not touch sign on a wall, the number of people who will touch it dramatically increases, whereas if it's just a wall, it's usually left alone. The law brings the sin to the front. It brings it out in the open. Romans verse, chapters eight, chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. By the way, if you want the gospel in a sentence, that's a pretty good place to find it. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, and that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful man, to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in sinful man 
in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. Now that phrase, if you're reading from the NIV, it says, he condemns sin and sinful man. That's the word flesh. He condemned sin in the flesh. Now, I don't think it's supposed to read sinful man. I think it's supposed to read in the flesh of Jesus. You see, what happened in the story of Jesus leading up to the crucifixion of Jesus as the religious leaders at the time and the political leaders at the time and even those who were supposed to be with Jesus caring for and protecting him as they fall silent, as corruption overtakes the others, sin just kind of comes to the fore. The story of the crucifixion is saturated with human frailty and sinfulness. It all sort of bubbles up to the surface, and then in the flesh of Jesus, God strikes it down. What does God do about evil? He pins it to the cross. What does God do about evil? He overcomes death and makes a way for life. And it's more than that. If anything could be more than that, more than the promise of eternal life, this story tells us there is more. Because transformation begins. The seed inside of each of us of death and sin gets replaced with a seed of life that blossoms out and transforms, changes us to be children of God, ambassadors of new creation, people sent out to be peacemakers in a world fallen, tainted, infected with sin. What is God's answer to evil? It is his son, Jesus, the crucifixion, resurrection. It is the Holy Spirit, and it is the church. You are part of God's answer to evil. Now that leaves us with the second question. What are we supposed to do about it? This is not an answer you can give one word to or one sentence to. I cannot give you a sentence of what should have happened in Genesis 34. Certainly not violence. Certainly not pretending it never happened. Certainly not allowing yourself to be paid so that a rapist can marry his victim. But you, Christian, you are called to listen to the Spirit in the midst of trouble, in the midst of struggle, in the midst of a world that has fallen and saturated with wrongness, and allow Him to speak through you words of life, to act through you to bring about peace and righteousness and justice and goodness. To be places inside of your heart acting out and affecting the world around you where we see new creation blooming forth. You are called to be God's answer to what do we do about evil. And so what I want to encourage you today 
As you think about the awful things in the world today, I don't know which ones are on your heart most. Most of you probably have something on your heart about the awfulness in the world today. God wants to use you as a person of peace to bring about life and change, transformation and righteousness and justice and goodness. He wants to use you as his answer to what do we do about evil. Jesus has overcome it. That victory is still playing out. And in the here and now, of course God can act. Of course he can act independent of us. But his favorite way to act is through us. Right? A person uses their body to act. We are the body of Christ and he uses us to act. So my question for you is in this thing that's bothering you, this part of evil that's on your heart, what does God want you to do to be a person of peace in the midst of it? Because you almost certainly can't solve the whole problem. No one person could make Genesis 34 anything close to okay. But what does God call you to do? What is your part in being the answer? And I want to encourage you to trust that the Holy Spirit will empower you, that God will use you, he will equip you, he will give you the words you need, the skills or talents that you need to do the things that he's called you to do if you will go obediently and boldly. Pray with me. Father God, we come before you Helpless apart from you. Lord, we are so helpless to contend with evil apart from you, we cannot help but being infected by it, being twisted up inside of it. If not for you, Lord, we would have death and not life. And so we ask that you would give us discernment and wisdom to know when and how and what you've called us to do and say and be and also what not to. We ask for courage when we need it, for strength. We ask that you allow us to never be overcome by our anger and sin in the midst of it. Let us never surrender to violence thinking that we can right a wrong with it. Revenge is not what you've called us to. Lord, use us as people of peace, as representatives of you, as your children, your sons and daughters, to speak life and love and peace into the world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.